episode 138 of the TruthQuest podcast, The Truth About Rush Limbaugh. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as Rush Limbaugh, politically induced mental illness, totalitarianism, the Paris Climate Accord, or purges on social media comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on a host of platforms including iTunes, Google Play, Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, BitChute, Brighteon, ThinkSpot, Rumble, and Instagram where I post a short highlight of each show at instagram.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Whatever platform you may be listening to this on, please take a moment and give it a five-star rating or a positive review. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through online advertising. Please see this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. I am recording this episode in mid-February of 2021. Rush Limbaugh died earlier this week. He announced over a year ago that he had advanced stage lung cancer. He never officially came out and told his audience how much time the doctors gave him, but I suspect it was just a few months. He participated in a trial treatment for a few months. The results were very promising, but the side effects left him with massive water retention, if I remember correctly. So much so that it threatened to kill him. So he stopped that treatment, waited a month for his body to recover, and started a more mainstream chemotherapy treatment. Throughout most of 2020, the guy still showed up for work. Probably three, maybe four times during the year, he would be out the week after treatment until the last two weeks where every day at 12.07, we would hear the show's iconic intro music start, a song named My City Was Gone by the Pretenders, followed by the voice of a substitute host. When Rush came on the air after the election last fall, he flat out told his audience that a year ago, he did not expect to be here to see the election. With that knowledge, coupled with his impassioned and heartbreaking sign-off from his last show in 2020 on December 23rd, we knew with each passing day, with substitutes sitting in front of the golden EIB microphone, EIB is short for the Excellence in Broadcasting Network, given all that, we came to realize he was probably not going to be returning. Mark Levin called Rush the Thomas Paine of our era, preaching the case for America every day. Along those same lines, someone else described him as a second-generation founding father for his love of the country and his ability to express and explain American exceptionalism to his audience. Longtime talk show host Neil Bort said he did for radio what Arnold Palmer did for golf. Regarding his December 23, 2020 sign-off from his show, it wasn't unusual for Rush to sign off for the year around Christmas, as he usually took the last two weeks of the year off anyways. But on this day, Rush had a rather ominous tone to his sign-off. He said, I understand now what Lou Gehrig meant, because I certainly feel like that. I feel extremely fortunate and lucky. And because I have outlived the diagnosis, I've been able to receive and hear and process some of the most wonderful, nice things about me that I might never have heard had I not gotten sick. How many people who pass away never hear the eulogies, never hear the thank yous? I've been very lucky, folks, in I can't tell you how many ways. He also explained that he felt somewhat like a failure to a certain extent after all these years because American liberalism still commanded so much power. For anyone who's spent any time listening to Rush, 
12.07 p.m. Eastern Standard Time will never be the same. That was the time he came on the air each weekday. For me, I was first introduced to Rush in 1988, which must have been right after his show was nationally syndicated. I was in college then, and I remember coming back to my dorm room in between classes and turning on his show. Back then, I knew nothing about politics, but something drew me to Rush. My first job was as a legal assistant with a very liberal attorney. It was a small office with just three of us working. I had a small transistor radio perched behind my chair where I played music or NPR or whatever during the day, except from 12 to 3, when I switched over to the AM dial to listen to Rush. Now, I knew if my boss and the paralegal that I worked with, I knew if they heard Rush's voice, I would be immediately escorted out of the office. So I was constantly surveying my surroundings, listening for footsteps with my finger dangling near the volume button, just in case. Early on in his syndication career, there were actual rush rooms all around the country where people would gather to listen to his show, probably necessitated by the challenge of picking up the AM signal. From that gig, I moved on to the corporate America world of cubicles. I was then faced with another challenge, how to pipe my man Rush into my 6x6 cage. I would prop my transistor radio up on the top of the cubicle during the three hours, desperately trying to grab the AM signal from the atmosphere. I continued the same volume control dance from my legal assistant days. I'd lean my head back and pick up nuggets from Rush. I'd cut the volume down when my neighbor reappeared with his lunch. As technology improved, so did my pursuit of Rush. Eventually, I secured a decent AM-FM cassette Walkman. Anyone remember those? So I had headphones now. Perfect. That solved the volume control dance issue, but there was still the damn AM signal issue to deal with. I solved that problem by conveniently going for a walk every day at noon. I'd eat my lunch and take in at least the first hour of the show. Then I'd go back to my cubicle and do the best I could to capture the rest of his show. I also started going to the gym in the afternoons, but that was not the perfect solution either because there were pockets inside the YMCA where the AM signal just got strangled. So I'd have to carefully manage my workout to only hit the dead zones during commercial breaks and at the top and bottom of the hour. Eventually, radio station websites started streaming their shows, making it very easy to listen. But then corporate America started blocking all streaming services. So many obstacles. But smartphones seemed to solve the problem once and for all, allowing Rush fans unadulterated access to their daytime fix. Until you got the bill, and you went way over on your data allowance. I'm telling you folks, the struggle was real. If I had to pick one thing that will always stick with me that I can attribute to Rush is six words. I do not accept your premise. See, he taught his listeners to think for themselves, to think critically. In order to do that, and in order to properly repel lies and propaganda, you have to listen carefully to what the other side is saying, and if they are pushing a false narrative, you nip it in the bud and reject their premise either requiring them to restate their question in an unbiased manner or simply refuse to address the issue or answer their questions. One of Rush's most remarkable gifts was his perspective. Ask any Rush fan and I can guarantee you that they will agree with the following sentence. One of the reasons I continue to listen to Rush is because of his perspective on the news of the day. See, we tuned in to find out what his take was. Not because we were mind-numb robots, but because his perspective was always different than the mainstream narrative. Even after 30 years of listening to him, I rarely was able to guess what Rush would say on a given subject. He taught me and his listeners to be fearless in the face of opposition. On many occasions, he gave sage advice. 
One in particular stands out when a caller asks for Rush to talk to the young people in his audience about how to be successful. Rush said in part, quote, Do not be constrained by norms. Be brave. Don't listen to negative voices. Don't get distracted by things that you cannot control. Don't think there is only one way to do what you want to do. Be honest with yourself about your passions and motivations. He spoke about the pressure to conform, saying, I am a nonconformist. And he explained that you can either be a person of hope or a person of action. All of that advice was in one soliloquy. He often spoke about perseverance, telling us how he was fired on multiple occasions, but remained undeterred. But with his famous sense of humor, he explained, quote, I was fired seven or eight times, only twice for legitimate insubordination, end quote. He loved telling the story of how on countless times he was told, you can't do a show without guests. He relished proving his critics wrong. Speaking of persevering, back in 2014, Rush began losing his hearing. Longtime listeners like me detected a change in his voice. It was a much higher pitch. It was really weird. He actually got cochlear implants and inspired countless people going through the same problem just by talking about his experience and explaining the implants and the procedure he underwent. One of his most consistent messages throughout the years had to do with victimhood. He said, quote, when you are a victim, you are self-limiting. He railed against the National Democrats and how they treated their constituents. The point he made over and over and over again was that the Democrats need a permanent underclass or a permanent group of victims in order to stay in power because their policies are destructive. They purposely carve up the electorate into these groups and tell them they are victims in order to alleviate their victimhood or seek revenge for all the harm befallen them is to vote for Democrats because they will make everything better. But... They never do. Rush hammered this message, demonstrating it with current events. He would also point out that the more people depend on government, the better for Democrats because they could promise them more and more goodies. He called it the Santa Claus effect. The mainstream media says, of course you can't talk about Rush without addressing his detractors. Really? Well, you know what? I don't accept that premise. See, the truth is, cancel culture started long before Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos. It started with Rush. The left painted Rush as the devil 30 years before they did the same thing to Trump. They tried advertiser boycotts. They blamed him for the Oklahoma City bombing. When he tried to buy into the ownership group of the St. Louis Rams, the hate-filled left-wing cancel mob descended on the NFL. They called him a bigot, a racist, a misogynist, a homophobe. Does that sound familiar? It makes sense when you think about it. This complete outsider from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, flyover country, which we all know the left disdains and dismisses, this guy challenged and crushed the left-wing media monopoly. Think about it. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you basically had three choices of news. ABC, NBC, CBS. Then comes this bombastic, cocky, former DJ, whose entire stick is to make fun of the left by playing audio of their own words or pointing out actions that they have taken and relentlessly mocking them in an in-your-face manner or through the use of parodies. You know the parodies I'm talking about. Produced by white comedian Paul Shanklin. Al Sharpton, Ted Kennedy, John McCain, the feminist update, the environmental update, with the chainsaw sound effects. So funny. Make no mistake, today's alternative media would look a lot different without Rush Limbaugh. Fox News, The Gateway Pundit, Breitbart, Newsmax, OAN, and dozens of other conservative outlets, and podcasts, and millions of citizen journalists, like many of you, owe a lot to Rush. 
Anyway, what the left knows is if they stay on message, enough people will hear that message and internalize it, which leads me to Thanksgiving Day, circa 2007. So my family is eating dinner, and at some point I bring up Rush. Both my father, a lifelong Democrat, and my late father-in-law, kind of an agnostic politically, I don't really remember talking political shop with him much, they both scoffed. They both made some remark like, I don't like that guy, or he's a racist. My response to both of them, after pausing to make sure their venting was over, was in the form of a question. How many hours have each of you listened to Rush's show in your entire life? Now keep in mind, both of them were almost 60 years old at the time, meaning they were plenty well-versed in radio having grown up in the 50s and knew all about the AM dial. No excuses. After swallowing their pride, both admitted, very big of them, that the answer was zero. They never listened to him, proving the power of the virtual media monopoly by left-leaning outlets for decades on end, a monopoly which Rush literally blew up. Anyone who's spent the least bit of time listening to Rush can easily cite half a dozen of his famous expressions. Here are a few. Greetings to you, music lovers, thrill seekers, conversationalists all across the fruited plain. Right here in my formerly nicotine-stained fingers. America's Anchorman. I know liberals like every square inch of my glorious naked body. Half my brain tied behind my back just to make it fair. Lovable little fuzzball. The groove yard of forgotten favorites. Politics is showbiz for the ugly. The latest opinion audit on me from the Sullivan Group's various branch offices in Northern California has my accuracy rate documented to be almost right 99.8% of the time. Exciting excursions into broadcast excellence. Doing what I was born to do. Then he would tell the audience that they were doing what they were born to do, listening to a broadcast professional like him. Having more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. Rush Limbaugh emitting vocal vibrations coast to coast. A household name in all four corners of the world. The job of a caller is to make the host look good. And that doesn't mean by fawning and praising all over him. Mostly it means a caller makes the host look good by inspiring me to be even more brilliant than I usually am. Welcome to the Rush Limbaugh Show. Show prep for the rest of the media. Are you ready for this? Da-da-let, da-da-let, da-da-let. The doctor of democracy. Rush Limbaugh here at the distinguished and prestigious Limbaugh Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies, where there are no graduates and there are no degrees because the learning never stops. At some point in the recent years, he changed it to the Limbaugh Institute for Advanced Studies of All Things That Matter. Similarly, Rush was a prolific nickname creator long before Trump. Think about it. The Clinton Library and Massage Parlor, John the Breck Girl Edwards, Dingy Harry Reid. Why did he call him Dingy? He said because Dirty Harry was already taken by Clint Eastwood, and Dingy is better than dirty. It's cloudy, murky, and filthy, just like former Senator Majority Leader Harry Reid. Michelle My Bell Obama, John F. Kerry, who served in Vietnam, Chuck U. Schumer, Joe Biden was simply referred to as Plugs. Rush was blessed with a tremendous sense of humor and an infectious laugh. He pulled off a number of impersonations. My favorites were Howard Cosell and Bill Clinton. He was creative beyond measure, creating his own lexicon, such as the drive-by media, because they throw out unsubstantiated lies and propaganda, damaging the target, then moving on, leaving the wreckage and carnage in its wake, just like a drive-by shooting. What about low-information voters? Here's a blast from the past. The Gorbasm. 
referring to the fawning over Mikhail Gorbachev by the drive-by media and State Department types when he came to America in 1987 to save the world from the crazy and dangerous Ronald Reagan. Rush explained it this way, quote, They were panting out there on the tarmac, and they were excited. They could barely contain themselves, and the door of the plane had opened, and Gorbachev appeared with that birthmark, and oh, 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 he has come. He's here, and they went nuts. Thus the term Gorbasm was born, created by me on air in Sacramento about the same time we came up with the word feminazi, by the way. What the heck is a feminazi? Well, that was the name Rush gave the modern-day feminist movement, proving yet again that he was way ahead of his time, because that is exactly what the feminist movement became. Instead of focusing on women's liberation issues, they instead evolved into a kill-your-baby-in-the-womb movement and a vagina-hat-wearing, scratch-your-eyes-out, rhetorically, of course, scratching your eyes out of anyone who dared challenge their new religion of abortion. Rush often played a clip of a feminist leader speaking at some rally saying, We're fierce, we're feminists, and we're in your face! And his producer would play it four or five times over and over again, and each time speeding up the audio. It was absolutely hilarious and pissed off the left something fierce. Rush used to claim to have identified what he called seminar callers. Essentially, there were Democrats getting past the call screener in order to zing Rush. He explained it on a show in 2019 this way. Tom Fitton at Judicial Watch, through a Freedom of Information Act request, had secured a bunch of documents from the Clinton Library detailing how they had run seminars for seminar callers, that they had actually run training missions to train people how to call this program and try to corrupt it. We recognize when this began to happen, and I named these callers seminar callers, because they weren't real. They were taught what to say. They were taught what to tell the screener in order to get past him and to get on the show. I mean, it was so transparent. It was so obvious that they were seminar callers. They'd all start out, for example, by saying, Mr. Limbaugh, I love you. I've been listening to your show since it began. I'm a conservative. I've always agreed with you. And then here would come the liberalism or here would come whatever the problem. But they always started out as sycophants and you can always spot them. So we had to have a little fun with them. Mr. Sternley would say, Okay, I got a couple of seminar callers. I made them think that they fooled me. And then they would be set up and we take their calls. During the 2008 primaries between Hillary and Obama, Rush came up with the idea to get people to vote for Hillary in the primaries. Some states have open primaries, meaning the Dems and the GOP can vote in the other party's primary. In other states, you must be registered as a Republican or a Democrat in order to vote in the primary. So Limbaugh encouraged his listeners to vote for Hillary in the open primaries and to temporarily change their registration to Democrats in order to vote for Hillary in the other states. This became known as Operation Chaos. The purpose of it, according to Limbaugh, was, quote, to keep the race going so that there would be hatred, animosity, and political bloodletting between Hillary and Barack Obama and their forces. Well, guess what? It worked. The stack of stuff was a staple of the show, it was simply what Rush referred to as his show prep, his pile of articles that he had collected over the previous 21 hours. In the early days on the internet, he made his stack available on his website, and he continued that practice up until the end. Basically, these days it's called show notes. I, I do it here myself. Every episode has links to sources used. He was way ahead of his time. How about this familiar refrain? Welcome to the show, Chris. Did you know that Chris is one of my all-time top 10 favorite female names? Welcome to the show, Emily. Did you know that Emily is one of my all-time top 10 favorite female names? He was so clever. He would only do that maybe once a month. 
over the course of years, you would realize, damn, he's been saying that for as long as I can remember. How can it be a top 10 if he's said it 50 or 60 times? That's hilarious. How about Dan's bake sale? I found this on the transcript from an April 2007 show. A caller named Lynette got through to Rush one day and asked him if he had ever been to Fort Collins, Colorado. Here's how he replied, in part. They called it the Republican Woodstock. See, what had happened was that I had started publishing the Limbaugh Letter. This was in the early days of the Limbaugh Letter. I got a note or an email from a guy named Dan. and Dan said that his wife wouldn't let him spend the money to buy it on his own, so he wanted to be able to have friends of his who got it, copy it, and give it to him so he could see it that way. Well, of course, I can't allow copyright violations like that. I would destroy the integrity of the publication. Also, at the same time, little school kids were being prompted by teachers to do bake sales and then send the money to President Clinton to reduce the national debt. So I got a hold of the guy, said, you know, you are missing a golden opportunity. Your wife says no, so you conclude you don't have any money. Do a bake sale. Do Dan's bake sale. Where do you live? He said, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. Well, do a bake sale. It wouldn't take you long, 24 bucks for the subscription. Okay, I'll do it, he said. Well, all this happened on the air, and everybody wanted to be a part of the bake sale. The funny thing was, the guy about whom this whole thing was about showed up with enough baked goods to last five minutes and then split. But there were 80,000 people gathered out there. Senator Hank Brown was with us out there, escorted out by a horse. It was raining all morning. As soon as I hit the stage, the skies broke. The sunshine came out. We flew into it in a helicopter because there was such a big traffic jam on the interstate. For miles. People trying to get to the place. So yeah, been to Fort Collins. Much more recently, Rush started the stand-up for Betty Ross apparel line. The idea raised $5 million for a charity. Here's how Rush described it. So, 4th of July, Nike announces a brand new set of sneakers that has the Betsy Ross flag, the original flag, 13 colonies in the United States, on the rear heel, the heel of the shoe. Here comes Colin Kaepernick saying he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the shoe, doesn't like the flag, doesn't like the design. Nike says, okay, we'll cancel them. We'll not sell them. We'll put the shoes on the shelves. Well, this infuriated me. It infuriated a lot of people. Kaepernick said he was upset about cops and their abuse of minorities. Now he's upset about the country and the flag, and here comes Nike doing his bidding. So we gave people a way to push back with a charitable tie-in. We created an entire line of apparel at RushLimbaugh.com featuring men and women's caps, shirts, golf shirts, any number of things with the Betsy Ross flag. The tie-in was to Tunnel to Towers, a charity that raises money for the surviving families of first responders and military people killed in action. How about the phony soldier controversy? Then Senate Majority Leader, this is 2007, Harry Reid, wrote a letter of complaint on Senate stationery with 40 other Democrat senator signatures, including Hillary and Barack. They wrote a letter to Mark Mays, the chairman of Clear Channel, one of Russia's syndication partners, urging him to talk with Limbaugh about a remark he made about phony soldiers. The letter demanded that May condemn Rush. Well, what did Rush do? He auctioned off the letter on eBay for a charity, Marine Corp Law Enforcement Foundation, which provides scholarships to children of slain Marines and police. The letter sold for $2.1 million, which Rush matched. The funniest part of the story was Harry Reid's reaction when he found out about Rush turning the letter into a fundraiser. He rushed to the Senate floor to take credit for it. Who did Rush dump on more than National Democrats? Why, Rio Linda, California, of course. 
You know the routine. Rush would be talking about a subject and pause briefly and say, For those of you in Rio Linda, this means such and such. A caller once asked, Why do you dump on Rio Linda? Rush explained, Well, because when I moved to Sacramento in 84, I was driving around. I needed to get familiar with the area because I'm going to be doing a radio show there. So I need to get to know the area. I'm driving through this town. The population sign doesn't even have a number on it. Nobody will admit to living there. And then I'm driving around. They got cars with no tires on the porch on the front porch and you got washers and dryers in the front yard i said what is this place and i offered to move i offered to move there if they would rename it limbaugh california i offered to move there to rename it and raise property values and they rejected me so that's that that's the backstory of rio linda if they would have just renamed it limbaugh i would have moved there and, and there wouldn't have been any jokes about it here's another classic the farting bit Here's how Rush explained it in 2018. Shortly after the clearance on WSL, I was just playing around, horsing around. I found a word in the dictionary that I found fascinating. And after I looked up this word, I said, you know what we've found, ladies and gentlemen? They were worried about highway safety back then. Something had happened and highway safety was a problem. And I said, one of the things we can do to really clean up highway safety is to get women to stop farting in their cars. If we get that stopped, we'll be safer. You can see it every time it happens. If you get that stop and get women to stop farting in their cars, then they'll be paying attention to driving and it'll be a lot safer out there on the roads. Well, all these people started calling. I can't believe what you're saying. What am, what am I saying? What are, what are you talking about? Well, how do you know that someone is doing that when they're driving? Because you can see it, I told them. And I'll tell you something else. Men don't do it. You will not see men farting in their cars while they're driving. And this went on and on. Finally, Tom Tradeup, who was running WSL at the time, pulled me off the air, canceled me for 45 minutes, and called Ed McLaughlin to say, this is not what we signed up for. This is not the kind of garbage we signed up for. And then Tom said, by the way, I'm sick and tired of hearing that Ted Kennedy song, too. The Philanderer. I don't think Ed was even aware of what we were doing. He didn't monitor every minute of the show. But I knew exactly when I heard this. I said, this is great. Of course, the word was fard, F-A-R-D. And you just run that pronunciation real quickly and people think you're saying the other word and it means to apply makeup. It's a French word to apply makeup. So I was on solid ground and, and I had not uttered an obscenity. I had not even said anything off color. But people thought so, including Tom Trunup. How about this one? It's almost as famous as live from New York. It's Saturday night. And you got to remember Johnny Donovan's voice. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida via New York City, it's Open Line Friday! Here's how Rush framed it. El Rushbo here, taking a great career risk, one of the greatest risks taken in big media. That risk is turning over the content portion of this program to you, lovable people, great people, love you, but you are rank amateurs. You are not a highly trained broadcast professional and specialist as I. So the rules Monday through Thursday off the table. Whatever you want to talk about, question, comment, whine, moan, feel free. I don't know if Rush and his team invented the montage, but he certainly made it mainstream. And wow, it is an effective technique against two particular targets. Number one, coordinated efforts to spread the same message. And two, people who say one thing at one time and the opposite a few years later or a few decades later. You just put them side by side in an audio track like Rush did, or in a visual medium, two side-by-side -side video clips. Rush's infamous first montage was the one where a half a dozen or more liberal media outlets said the same thing on their newscast one night. 
picking Dick Cheney as his running mate gives Bush gravitas. For the next 20 years, Rush and his team produced countless montages of media talking heads using the same exact phraseology regarding certain news events, proving that talking points are distributed by someone. They're so pathetic. He also loved playing a montage of Wolf Blitzer one day during the Bush administration when his approval ratings dropped below some breakpoint, and Rush's team compiled this montage of Wolf, who at the time had like a three-hour show in the afternoon. The montage was Wolf breathlessly reporting the dramatic drop in Bush's approval rating at the top and the bottom of each hour, and it was so funny. Obama was the target of many montages, as you can imagine. One I remember were clips of him expressing anger and outrage. I'll get to the bottom of this, over and over again. Then Rush reveals that each expression of outrage from Obama was a different scandal that plagued his administration. The IRS Tea Party scandal, Fast and Furious, the disastrous Obamacare rollout, the Secret Service scandal, the VA scandal. Another favorite Obama montage was similar. He would always claim ignorance and say, I learned about that in the paper this morning, just like you. Through the use of montages, you are able to use the target's own words to discredit them. In this case, Obama, knowing the drive-by media will not hold him accountable, just skates by his administration's own incompetency without taking blame. I mentioned Rush's iconic intro song earlier, My City Was Gone by The Pretenders. About once a year, he would play the entire song and tell the story about how he picked it and how it was almost taken away from the show. Quote, I thought I'd pick just a thumping bass line rock and roll song to send the signal there there was nothing old about this program, that there was nothing dated about it, that it was nothing other than something young and hip, and it was the bass line that got me on that song. Well, after 10 or 12 years, EMI, the label, reached out to Rush at one point and demanded that he stop using it because the song's writer, Chrissy Hyde, did not want to be associated with the show. When Hyde was asked about this, she said, that's fine for him to use it. Quote, my parents love Rush. I can't stand them, but they love him. The rest is history. Rush was often way ahead of the curve, including his skepticism over global warming, global cooling, man-made climate change. He was a skeptic for decades because he saw through the propaganda. He knew where their agenda would lead, and he knew they were lying. His fleeing of New York for Florida in 1997 was also way ahead of the mass exodus from high-tax, high-regulation states that we're seeing today. He often joked about how New York audited him every year, counting how many days he worked in New York so they could get their grubby little hands on some portion of his income. Governor Patterson of New York at the time, of course a Democrat, made a smart-ass remark about his departure, which was one of those I-wish-my-parents-could-see-me-now moments that Rush often spoke about. He was truly fascinated with the attention he got from powerful people, presidents, Speaker of the House, Senate Majority Leader, members of Congress, governors, Hollywood types, calling him out, either criticizing or sometimes praising him. He truly saw himself just as a guy from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, living a dream and doing what he was born to do. Hell, even President Clinton openly complained that Rush has three hours a day to talk to the American people, and poor old me, I'm just the president. How can I combat that? Wow, that's real power. As most of you know, Rush was presented with the Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor bestowed on Americans at the 2020 State of the Union address by President Trump. Rush told a hilarious story about the days leading up to the event. He was in the middle of his cancer treatments and had a procedure scheduled for the day of the address or the day before. Trump calls him and invites him to be his guest. Rush says, sorry, no can do, I got treatments. Trump said something to the effect of, can't you do it another day? Give me the name of your doctor and I'll give him a call and work it out. 
Rush was so tickled by Trump's response, he thought it exemplified his mentality about everything. Just get it done. Rush ended up working it out with his doctors. Turns out, though, that Rush had no idea about the actual award. He, he thought Trump was just going to verbally honor him, which was why he looked so surprised at the moment. Imagine inventing something and then dominating it for 30 straight years. That's what Rush did. He invented conservative talk radio. He saved the AM dial. He spawned the Glenn Becks, Sean Hannity's, Mark Levin's, Dan Bongino's, and Ben Shapiro's of the world. Rush was the leader for the entirety of his career. Like the national debt, his audience grew every year. Bongino offers this sports analogy. Willie Mays was a great baseball player. Michael Jordan was a great basketball player. But they did not invent baseball or basketball. I can tell you why his audience grew for 30 continuous years. The reason is because he said things that many of us were thinking. He just articulated them in a way that made it stick. People called his show all the time and told him that. Late in his career, he spoke about his faith in God. I can't say I could ever remember him talking specifically about Jesus, but his brother David Limbaugh is a fierce defender of the faith, a prominent Christian apologetic author of several books. So I'm fairly certain Rush was a believer, but I sense that his faith grew over the last year. I'm sure a death sentence can do that sometimes, but all the people praying for him clearly had an impact. What must it be like to have millions of people praying for you? Rush was asked by some newspaper for a 400-word op-ed on the election of Obama. He told them, I only need four. I hope he fails. He was skewered for years by the left for this comment. When he addressed it, he essentially said, why would I want anything else? I know what his policies are, and if implemented, they will do damage to the country. Why would I hope for anything else? I want to talk about Rush's legacy for a minute. Top of mind is his fans like me, you know, the ditto heads. Mega dittos, Rush. Here's an excerpt from the May 19th, 2011 show. Here's Rush. Back when the show started on August 1st, 1988, I took the nation by storm because there was nothing like it in the national media. The national media was all liberal. Here was this conservative program that reflected the views of millions of people. As people would call in, the first couple of minutes of their call, literally, they'd spend thanking me and talking about how great it was to have something like this on the radio. Finally, it was so great. And I, of course, loved hearing it. After a while, after about six months, it finally started to get old. It was delaying getting to the discussion of the issues. A woman called from, I think it was, like New Hampshire, and after just one of those calls said, ditto to what the guy just said. So ditto means I love the program, don't ever go away. It doesn't mean I agree with you. It doesn't mean you're always right. It means I love the program. Mega dittos means I love it. I mean, I adore this program. It's the only program. That's what mega dittos means. His show was live streamed to Rush 24-7 subscribers on the Ditto Cam, of course. Because Rush's career spanned multiple generations, well, I guess officially it was two generations, but anyway, the term Rush Babies was coined by listeners who called in to explain to Rush that they literally grew up listening to him. Rush shared his passions with his audience. He loved aviation, especially once he purchased a private jet. So he talked about aviation. Also, Rush was obsessed with Apple products. He talked about them endlessly, especially whenever the latest update was due. He was a beta tester or something, so he would get the updates before the general public, and he would tell us about all the new features and apps. For a period of time, he gave away iPads and iPhones to callers. Golf, golf, golf. Oh man, he loved golf. He loved to play it, he loved to watch it, and he loved to talk about it. And before it went woke, Rush loved the NFL, specifically the Pittsburgh Steelers. 
Monday's show during football season was filled with stories of, what, of whatever game he went to that weekend. Even though Rush shared his passions with us, whenever he spoke about these things, he would get emails from what he called the stick-to-the-issues crowd. He would read an email from one of those people and laughingly chastise them. He would say something like, Come on, guys, you can't expect me to talk politics every single minute of every single show. I know for a fact that you would not be listening to me right now if it wasn't for Rush Limbaugh because I wouldn't have produced this show without Rush's influence. Unfortunately, he openly denigrated podcasts on many occasions. He would say stuff like, everyone and anyone has a podcast these days, which of course is true, but what he did not realize is that he inspired the Truth Quest podcast for one, and maybe thousands of others. I mean, what an incredible legacy. I always assumed that his criticism wasn't so much over the incompetence of us podcasters or a lack of ability. It was his 40-year struggle to climb the mountain from DJ to talk radio superstar. The technology available to me and to you, if you ever choose to do this, was not available to him when he got his start, which is why he was such a trailblazer. If he could look down now and see all the Rush babies doing their part, spreading the message of liberty, freedom, God-given rights, limited government, and the Constitution, he would be proud beyond words. Rush wasn't all about the show. In addition to his other interests I just mentioned, he published the Limbaugh letter that was described as the most widely read political newsletter in the country. Both of his books, See I Told You So and The Way Things Ought to Be, were of course bestsellers. In the 1990s, he had a TV show for a couple of years. The ties that he wore on the show became big hits and big sellers. He said he hated television because of the amount of show prep required versus radio where he could bob and weave and adapt with the news. His multi-decade annual fundraiser for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society raised over $47 million. Do you remember when he was on ESPN? I think it was like 2003 or 2004. He basically sat at a desk at the far end of the studio from the rest of the NFL team, which I think was comprised of Michael Irvin, Tom Jackson, Chris Berman, and I don't know, maybe Steve Young, and maybe Mike Dick, I can't remember. Anyways, the crew would get to talking, and once in a while, they'd just toss it over to Rush for comment. Well, one time they were talking about the demise of Donovan McNabb, the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. When they tossed it to Rush, his comment was something like, Come on, guys, let's be honest here. The only reason you have so much angst, the reason you're spending so much time talking about Donovan is because he's an African-American. If he was a white quarterback, you wouldn't have spent so much time talking about it. Funny thing happened. Nothing. No one in the studio disagreed with him. No one pushed back. But the inclusive, diverse, left-wing cancel culture mob hit a few days later, calling Russia racist. So ESPN made him resign. This was, what, 15 years before ESPN canned Kurt Schilling and the purge of anything conservative at ESPN? Again, Rush, way ahead of his time. Now, Rush didn't have any children of his own, but one of the ways he felt like he was serving the next generation of Rush babies was through his Rush Revere books that taught American history through the Rush Revere character. He wanted to counter the crap history taught in schools. If you would like to get a master's degree in common sense, go to RushLimbaugh.com and do a search on any topic. Rush often described it as an encyclopedic website. You can read the transcripts from a decade or more of his shows. It's truly a national treasure that I hope remains available for all of posterity. I know it sounds stupid to say this about a complete stranger, but I consider Rush a friend. He was everything you aspire to be. Always optimistic, undeterred by criticism, and authentic. He was a master storyteller with an innate ability to distill complex concepts down to a level that anyone could understand. Every day of his show, he said, talent on loan from God. Unfortunately for all of us who grew to love Rush, his loan came due. His talent has been returned to God, as has Rush's soul. 
No more physical pain from the cancer and its treatments. His hearing restored. Hopefully reunited with his parents. I can only imagine him bending God's ear at this very moment. I mean, he spent his life talking. You really think he's going to stop in the afterlife? He often signed off his show by saying, Folks, that's it for today. But as you know, the program never ends. We just have to take a 21-hour break. We'll be back here tomorrow to pick it up right where we left off. Oh, how I wish that was true. And that is the truth about Rush Limbaugh. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.